The subject of tonight's talk, I think, is in some ways the most important in the entire three months. Because it provides the context of understanding both what our practice is about and what our lives are about. Last time I talked, I asked you the question, why are you here? Tonight's talk is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Understanding the law of karma is the understanding of one of the most basic and fundamental laws governing our lives, governing our relationships, governing our experiences. So it becomes essential to understand how this law of karma works so that we're able to live in harmony with it. So that we're able to create for our lives a sense of spaciousness, a sense of freedom. Karma means action. It's a Sanskrit word and it means action. But the Buddha used it in a more specific way. And that is the volition or the intention behind the action. He said that volition is karma. It's the volition or the intention behind the action which brings the results. It's not the action itself, but that motivating force behind it. Every volition or intention in the mind has inherent in it an energy powerful enough to bring about a certain result, a certain effect. To illustrate the difference between the motivation of an action and the action, the story in the Buddha's time of one monk who, because of some past action, some past karma, had become blind. Also in the course of his practice, he had become fully enlightened. He was doing the walking meditation back and forth, Because he was blind, he was stepping on ants and killing them. The other monks were very upset at this. And they went running to the Buddha and said, how can that be? How can this fully enlightened being be killing when it's against the precepts to kill? It was in that context that the Buddha described or explained how it's not the action itself but the motive behind it, which gives the karmic force to the act. And in that case, because of the blind monk, there was no intention to kill the ants. There was no motive. There was no volition to do that. There was nothing, it was not an unwholesome state of mind. There was no unwholesome karma being created. When we understand that 
karma means volition or motivation, then we can begin to see the enormous responsibility that we have to become conscious of the motives in our mind. To become conscious of the intention which precedes the action. Because to the degree that we remain unconscious and unaware, we'll be performing acts based on varying motivations, some of which may be very unskillful, unskillful, unwholesome, creative of unpleasant result, unskillful result, and all because we're not aware, we're not mindful of it. So, so much of the practice has to do with paying attention to, becoming conscious of our motives. Karma can be understood on two levels. And it's these two levels which will indicate the breadth and the scope of the implications of this law in our lives. One level of understanding karma has to do with the level of our actions, of our lives unfolding, on the level of being and rebirth. We do certain actions and then down the road we experience happiness or unhappiness. Because of actions at the time of death, certain rebirth consciousness arises. This flow of our lives, through lives, life after life, understanding the karmic input to the unfolding of our stories. That's one level of karma. Another level has to do with the understanding of it on the mind moment level. That is, in each mind moment of perception, how the karmic law is working and how it is that we stay bound to this wheel of samsara, to this wheel of life and death, and through understanding how karma works on that mind moment level, to see the possibility of release, of freedom. The quality of our mind in every moment's experience is called present karma. That is, when we experience a mind of love, a mind moment of love, there's a certain quality to that experience. There's a certain openness, a certain joy, a certain connectedness, lovingness. And there's an immediate fruit to that experience. That is the experience of that state. When there's a moment of greed or anger or hatred, in addition to whatever future results will come, there's a present karma involved. That is how we feel in that moment. This present karma has another dimension to it, and one that is interesting in understanding our development as personalities. Even though we speak of selflessness and no self, still in this room there are 120 quite unique personalities. 
How does that come about? It comes about because we've each, in our own way, consciously or unconsciously, cultivated different kinds of mind states. If we cultivate loving-kindness, and we practice that mind state, we experience the present karma of it, that is, we experience the fruit of that state in the moment, and we're also developing it and strengthening it, making it a force in our minds. Everything that we practice becomes stronger. If we practice anger, if we repeatedly experience anger, there's the present karma of that, meaning we feel the energy, we feel the tension, the suffering of the anger, and also we're developing that as a quality, as a habit, as a pattern. And so that particular energy configuration becomes strong. Who we are as personalities is the collection of all of these tendencies of mind which we've, which we've been developing. But for most of us, we don't really pay attention to that conditioning factor of our experience. We think we experience something and then it's finished and gone with no residue, with no result. And that would be like dropping a stone in water and not having ripples come out from it. Now we drop the stone and the ripples spread throughout the lake. We experience a certain quality of mind and in addition to the experience of that moment, however it is, it's also conditioning our mind or habituating our mind to that particular energy, energy pattern. When we understand this, we can begin to get an intuitive sense of something which the Buddha talked very often about, and that is the emergence of the six realms of existence. Because these six realms of existence are simply the manifestation of strongly developed energy patterns. What are the six realms that the Buddha talked about and that many people, through the power of their mind, can actually experience? There are four lower realms. And not only do they refer to these actual planes of existence, but they obviously refer to the states of mind that create them. There are four realms of suffering. One of them is the hell realms. And the hell realms are conditioned by hatred in the mind. When hatred is cultivated, when it's practiced, when it's made strong, as people do in their lives, unknowingly, unconsciously, get into a certain habit pattern of responding to situations with anger and violence and hatred. There's the present karma of that, which is the contraction and burning of those states, as well as the creation for that person of that realm of existence. And there are 
Actually, it's quite interesting. In all these spiritual traditions, or many of them, there are very similar descriptions of that realm. In the traditional hellfire sermons, you can see from the experience of hatred in this life, you know, in our minds when, we, when we're having that feeling, we can experience the fire of it. It's a tremendous burning which becomes manifest then in one of the realms of existence. Another of the realms is what's called the pretas, or the, the hungry ghosts. And this is a realm conditioned by strong greed, overwhelming greed. The wanting mind that becomes so overpowering and so compulsive when nothing stands in the way of that, of that grasping and clinging. And the description of beings in that realm, one of them personifies very accurately the quality of mind, of heavy-duty greed. And it's a being, huge beings, beings with huge bodies, massive bodies, with pinhole mouths, and so are never able to be satisfied. Never able to receive enough to actually feel satisfied. It's so clear that that is actually a manifestation of that mind state. And when greed is strong, that strong desire, excessive, addictive, compulsive greed, There's no possibility of satisfaction. There's no possibility of fulfillment, of contentment. We experience that in this this existence, in those mind moments when greed is strong, and it leads to rebirth in that realm. Tremendous suffering involved. There's the realm of what are called the asuras, or the demons. And that's when the mind states of both fear and desire become very strong. And these demons are are alternating between enjoying themselves and fighting and in conflict with a lot of violence involved. Also suffering, struggle. The animal realm. Now these first three realms are realms that we experience in terms of certain mind states in the moment, but also which beings who have powers of mind can actually see in terms of realms of existence. The animal realm is one that we can all see. We don't need any special psychic power. And for the most part, the mind states which condition that realm are the mind states of dullness or stupidity. It's not to say that there haven't been some very brilliant animals. (laughs) More brilliant than some of us, perhaps. But as a general rule, characterized by that kind of heaviness or dullness of consciousness. The human realm. The human realm is the first, the one that's considered the happy planes of existence. The other four are... (laughs) So you think it's bad now. (laughs) 
I was going very light on the description of the four lower realms. <laughs> if you want a heavy dose of motivation, you should open some traditional Buddhist text on a description of those realms. Tremendous suffering involved. Created by those mind states. The human realm, which, which in, the, in the realm of pain and pleasure really is more weighted towards the pleasure, is conditioned or created by the mind states of a basic level of generosity or sharing or giving and morality of non-harming. There's a reason why we all took birth on this plane. There were certain wholesome roots in the mind. Very powerful, actually. Generosity and morality which creates the human realm and also the realm of the, it's called the devas, the celestial realm of sense pleasures, which I talked about earlier in the course. In the highest realm, called the Brahma realms, and that comes from the mind which has strongly developed and cultivated concentration to the point of absorption, or what's called jhana in Pali, where the mind becomes absorbed in the object, it's above or beyond the sensual realm. Tremendous bliss in those realms, the bliss of deep samadhi, concentration. All of these realms are karmically created. There's no There's nobody who is putting us or condemning us or judging us to take birth in any of these realms, just as nobody is judging us or condemning us or putting us into different mind states in this life. The power and the beauty and the inspiration of the Buddhist teachings is always the ultimate responsibility for our lives is placed on ourselves. Nobody can do it for us because it's the unfolding of this basic karmic law. Given certain actions, certain volitions, certain results will happen. When we understand that, when we understand that it's our own actions, we are the heirs to our own actions, then there's that deepening sense of responsibility for what we do with our lives, what we do with our minds, how we're cultivating it. To give you a sense of the preciousness of taking human birth, Buddha gave the example of how difficult it is, once one has been reborn in the lower realms, to again take birth as a human. He said it's like a blind turtle living at the bottom of a huge ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And on the surface of the ocean, 
being tossed about by the winds and waves is just a yoke of wood floating, floating on the surface. This blind turtle is living someplace at the bottom. Just imagine the Pacific. It's not this little pond out here. It's big, very big. You know, in some place there's this turtle that's blind, and somewhere on the surface this wooden yoke is floating, and once every hundred years the turtle surfaces, the odds that the turtle will actually stick its head through that wooden yoke is greater than the possibility of a being who's been reborn in the lower realms to take birth as a human. It'll happen, (laughs) but it's a long, long time. And you can see why when you understand that birth in the different realms depends upon the karma created. When beings are in the realms of this tremendous suffering, there's very little opportunity to actually be creating wholesome karma. So it's just like a cycle downwards. In those realms, they're characterized by anger, by hatred, by fear, by dullness, by delusion. So it's very hard, very hard to have that opportunity again. Reflection on that, understanding of that, can give a tremendous sense of urgency and preciousness appreciation of our circumstance and situation, not only birth as human, but the connection to the Dharma, is, is so rare. These, these worlds are like dreams being played out according to this karmic law, according to the cause and effect Motivated action brings result. Motivated action brings result. Ten trillion, billion, some huge number of times a day, intentions are arising in the mind, constantly creating this karmic force that brings result. We have to pay attention, and in that attention, in that awareness, we, we can begin to take the responsibility for the unfolding of our lives, where we actually want to go. Somebody came to the Buddha once and asked, you know, they said that they look around and they see so many different kinds of people in the world with so many different qualities and characteristics. What makes for those differences? Some die old, some die young, some are rich, some are poor, some are beautiful, some are not beautiful, some are wise, some are stupid. And in this one sutta discourse, the Buddha explained the karma, the actions which produced all of those results. Non-killing results in long life. When we take the lives of other beings, the result of that is that our life is shortened. Why are some people healthy and some people sickly? Non-harming is the karmic force for health. And we're not harming or hurting other beings. So our own being stays healthy and strong. 
Why are some people beautiful and some people not? Buddha described how anger and hatred creates ugliness, and gentleness and softness of speech creates beauty. You can see it. I mean, watch when somebody's really angry. See what their face is like. You know, and that's an energy that has that has a continuing force. Really, if we paid attention carefully, if we observed carefully, all of this would become so clear to us. Why are people wealthy and some people poor? Generosity is the karmic cause of wealth. Greed is the karmic cause of poverty. Why are some people wise and some people dull? The Buddha talked of the inquiring mind, the investigative mind, the mind that's willing to really look and explore. Out of that wisdom comes. People who don't do that, who are not interested in investigating and seeing, so the mind becomes dull. The Buddhist teachings, something that comes through over and over again, so much emphasis is placed on one aspect of right view and wrong view. Wrong view being the view that actions don't bring results, and right view being the understanding that they do. It's very important to understand that because mostly our culture, our society, reconditions the idea that what we do doesn't really bring results back to us. You know, it's much more geared to the immediate gratification. It's important to take a long-range view because the energy that we put out, what we put out is what we get. Sharon was coaching me on one line from a Bob Dylan song. I hope I get it right. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. (laughs) Or something like that. It's a good line to reflect upon. (laughs) Our actions bring results. Our lives unfold not randomly, not haphazardly. We are the heirs to our own deeds, to our own actions, and to the motive behind them. It becomes very important then, in our practice and in our lives, to see what our motives are, where are they leading? Is it going where we want it to be going? Is it going to bring the result that we want? Mindfulness plays a very critical role in this attention to the karmic unfolding. There are two aspects of mindfulness, particularly with attention to karma. One is called, one aspect of mindfulness is called clear comprehension. Clear comprehension means that we actually are paying attention to what we're doing. 
You stand up, you know that you're standing. You're eating, know that you're eating. You're walking, know that you're walking. Clear comprehension of what's going on. Basic awareness, basic attention. And the other aspect is called suitability of purpose. That is, is the purpose of our action, is it suitable? That is, is the action going to bring the result that we desire? Mostly, though, because the mindfulness often is weak, that is, we're not paying so careful attention, habit patterns kind of push us or propel us into certain actions or behavior and we're not paying attention, we don't pay attention to clear comprehension, and we don't have any sense of suitability of purpose. Whether it's actually skillful or whether it's unskillful. If the understanding in our minds is deep that our actions bring result, then there's more interest, compelling interest, actually to pay attention to what we're doing. Now we think so often that a particular action doesn't matter. Just do it and never mind, it's gone. In two ways it's very important. The first way is that beside the experience of whatever that action is in the moment, it also brings a future result. And the second way is that that very action, along with every other one, reconditions our mind. So if it's a, if it's a moment of anger and we're lost in it, what we're doing is cultivating anger. If there's greed, then we're cultivating greed. And the image is used, which I think is helpful to remember, is that of a bucket being filled drop by drop. And we think each drop is not very significant. doesn't really matter. You leave the bucket there, and drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. Our mind is like the bucket. and there's no place to take it away to. It's being, the drops are dropping in. It sounds like you can just take it from underneath the leak. To respect, to have a tremendous respect for the conditioning power of the mind. Not only with respect to the present experience, but also to the direction that it's going. Now, one question which I find helpful, and perhaps you will in terms of really taking a look at what we do in our lives, if you could imagine yourself in your dying moment, or on your deathbed, 
what would you have wanted to do? How would you have wanted to live? What would you have wanted to cultivate? To really get a sense that our lives are a dynamic, changing, flowing energy transformation, and that we have the power. That's what's so amazing. We're not a slave to past conditioning. As soon as we become conscious, as soon as we develop to some extent the ability to stand back and observe, then we have tremendous power in our lives to create what we want. What's important? What are the values? What are we developing? How will we have wanted to have lived? Don't wait until then. If you can reflect now, we can do something about it. The reflection on karma can bring a very strong motivation to practice. One story illustrating this, it's like it's a way of using, basically of transforming all of one's past unskillful actions, of which we all have an infinite supply. How to transform all that unskillfulness and unwholesomeness into a force for purification. The story is of the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa. When he was young, he came from a a fairly wealthy family, landowning family. When he was young, his father died. And his aunt and uncle basically stole his family's property. And his mother was reduced to being a servant, and they would they were made these kind of outcasts in the family. Tremendous resentment over the years built up. So when he was grown, he went off and studied black magic. There was some black magician in the Himalayas, learning all kinds of mantras and curses. And, and he came back, and he had tremendous power by then, and he cursed right, the, the aunt and the uncle and the lands and caused tremendous suffering but just out of that anger and that resentment that had built up. But after he had done this, he started reflecting upon the law of karma and seeing what he had done and the kind of unwholesomeness of mind. And he realized that he better get enlightened in that life or he was in trouble. (laughs) And so that sense, that reflection on the law of karma gave him this quality of urgency, and he went in search of a teacher, and the story of his meeting his teacher Marpa and his years of study. There's a wonderful book, the, the biography of Milarepa, which details all of this. And he went on to tremendously um, committed practice um, to, to a wonderful, great state of opening and enlightenment. He was pushed by that reflection on the power of karma and how precious the opportunity is to actually be practicing. A few years ago, the Dalai Lama visited, gave a talk in Boston, and in that talk he said something which to students of Buddha Dharma 
was rather um, surprising. He was talking about karma and emptiness, selflessness. He was talking to this, this group of Dharma students in Boston. He said that if there was a choice between really understanding karma and emptiness, go for karma. And in the context of the Buddhist teachings, that's very surprising because it's like the real heart of wisdom is understanding the emptiness of it all, the selflessness. But I think his point was extremely important and valuable for us to understand. Because too often, the understanding of emptiness, even when we begin to get just a little hit of it, a little understanding, can be then used as a rationale for not taking responsibility for our actions. You know, in the kind of spiritual jargon, oh, it's all empty, so it doesn't matter. It's a big, big misunderstanding. If we pay attention to the law of karma, that is, understanding that our actions bring results, and becoming mindful and aware and sensitive and take responsibility for that, out of that, a genuine understanding of emptiness will, will come about. We won't be using it right, in a superficial way to justify unwholesome action. It's through the understanding of karma that actions bring result. Bring result in this life, bring result in future lives. It's through the understanding of karma that tremendous and deep compassion begins to arise. When we understand that when somebody is doing something that we call wrong, or harmful, or hateful, or unjust, or unfair. When we can see clearly that those actions are leading that person into fire, what's the response? The response tends not to be anger, and not to be resentment, but to be a real compassion for that ignorance. And to respond in whatever way we can, and sometimes it takes a very strong response, but to respond to the ignorance which is causing that action. People do not know what they're doing. They're acting in ways which not only are creating unpleasant present karma for themselves and other people, but they're acting in ways which are leading directly to states of tremendous pain and suffering, and they don't know it. When we see that and appreciate that, our response to them is very different. There's a possibility then for a very genuine compassion. Compassion for the ignorance. Compassion for the ignorance that leads to that suffering. There are a few karma stories I'd like to share with you to give you a sense of some different aspects of how the law works.
different mind moments each have their own result. And so an action can be very mixed. There's the story of one man in the Buddha's time who saw a monk going by, who happened to be an arhant, fully enlightened, and he thought to offer food. So he got some food and he offered the food, and just after he had offered it, he was sorry he did. So why did I give this this beggar? In in the scriptures, the the monks when they're not being respected by people are called shavelings. Right? Why did I give this shaveling food? And so he just he was sorry he did and he repented. The karmic fruit of that whole situation was that for seven lifetimes in a row he was reborn as a millionaire from the fruit of actually having given to an enlightened being. And the karmic fruit of the repentance or the regret was that in all those lifetimes as a millionaire he lived as a miser and not not able uh, to enjoy the fruit of the wealth. And so it's like every moment brings its appropriate result, which is why it's important to really surround you know, every act of wholesomeness with more mind, mind moments of wholesomeness, of appreciation for what we're doing. It gives a greater power to it. The moment of death is crucial plays a very powerful role in the rebirth. What realm, what kind of rebirth we have. And there are different kinds of karma which happen at the time of death. Some of it is called weighty, if there's a very heavy action that we've done, both wholesome or unwholesome, that takes precedent and it conditions what comes next. Following that, it's called proximate karma. That is just the mind situation of that last moment. Somebody reminds us of something good or wholesome, and that's our last moment, so that conditions. If that doesn't happen, then it's our habitual pattern, something we've done over and over again in our lives, and that comes up in the last moment, conditions our next birth. And if that doesn't happen, then it's just a random moment. There's one story of the Buddha giving a talk to an assemblage of monks and nuns and lay people. And there was a lay person there who was leaning on a staff. And just as he was leaning on a staff, he happened to put the staff down on the head of a frog. And the frog died. And the story is that the frog's last moment was that of hearing the sounds of the Buddha's voice. And it was so... whatever. (laughs) Peaceful, soothing, uplifting. Because that was the last moment of consciousness of this frog. He got that turtle through the (laughs) yoke. That was the one for the eon. (laughs) And it said he was reborn in the deva world. 
Well, the dying moment's important, and it's actually encouraging to see in our culture now more attention to be being paid to the circumstances with which people die. You know that the surroundings are important, the input is important, because it plays such a critical role in the unfolding karmic process. There's another aspect of karma, which is helpful to understand, and that our past actions have different, um, there are different possibilities for those results to reach us in different circumstances. That is, karma, the karma of our past action has a certain reach. And in some situations they can reach us, and in other situations they can't reach us. And it's helpful to know what that is. Again, there's a story illustrating it. There was somebody who had been involved in a lot of killing in his life. And he was caught by the king and condemned to be executed. He really led a pretty bad life. A lot of unwholesome action. And just as he was about to be executed, he saw some monks walking by and remembered that once early on in his life, he had offered food to Sariputra, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha. Great, great monk. And his dying moment, just as the axe came down, was that remembrance of having offered food. Because that was his dying moment, He also was reborn in the heaven realms. When there's rebirth in the heaven realms, while one is in that realm, the fruit of unwholesome karma, it can't reach to that realm. It's all wholesome fruit being experienced. Everything is pleasant on all sides. But this this being, he he was wise. It said that devas have the power to look back into their past lives and see know, what got them to that state. So he looked back and he saw that he had been this terrible person, you know, killing a lot of people and a lot of unwholesomeness. He saw why it was that, you know, he had been reborn in the heaven realms. And it motivated him to practice a lot because he knew that that karma was waiting for him, (laughs) right? And that when his life, life as a deva played itself out, it's like all of that, all of that energy would then, would then bear its own fruit. So he practiced, he became enlightened. Even at the first stage of enlightenment, one of the powers of it is that it closes off rebirth in the lower realms. The power of that moment of opening to ultimate truth is so strong, it's a heavy karma, it's a heavy wholesome karma, it closes off the possibility of rebirth in the lower realms. And so, by that fortuitous remembrance, at the last moment, he got himself reborn in a good place, looked back at what happened, he sat and he walked. (laughs) Which is not easy to do in the heaven realms because there's lots of temptations. (laughs) What are the relative power of different kinds of action. The Buddha talked of what kinds of actions have the most potency, the most power, 
talked about generosity and how he said, if we knew as he did the fruit of giving, not let a single meal pass without sharing. It's such a strong karmic force. It brings so many blessings back. You know, this talk, I'll just interrupt for a moment. The reason I started early is because it's long. And I just feel that it's so important to have an understanding of how it's all working. So if you can, you know, settle in for a bit. Going back. talked of what it is in a moment of giving that empowers that act. What makes the act potent? It said that an act of generosity is purified in three ways. It's purified by the giver, it's purified by the receiver, and it's purified by the gift. That is, if the giver has a pure mind, that makes the karmic fruit of it very strong. If the receiver has a pure mind, it makes the karmic fruit strong. And if the gift is rightfully gotten, it makes it, it, makes it strong. Therefore, when, when we give to, for example, uh, the Buddha, or a fully enlightened being, not only are we gaining the fruit of our own act of purity, but the force of their minds also lend themselves to the potency of that action. Very powerful. The Buddha said that more potent than giving a gift to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened monks, given this understanding, you can, you can imagine how powerful that kind of action would be. He said, more powerful than that is one moment of a mind concentrated with the power of love, power of metta. Tremendous force. When we can concentrate our minds with the purity of loving-kindness, of extending that feeling towards all beings, the karmic result of that is more powerful than if we had made an offering to the Buddha and the whole order of monks. And you can see why in some, some limited sense, in that a moment of that kind of purity of love and kindness, first of all, the expansiveness of that mind, where we really open our hearts in a genuine, deep way of connectedness to all beings. You can see how it becomes then the motive force for so many other actions. So it's tremendously, tremendously powerful, the development of love. Went on to say that more potent, more powerful than the development of that moments of love and kindness is one moment of deeply seeing the arising and passing away phenomena. One moment of clearly 
deeply, profoundly seeing, experiencing the impermanence of things, more powerful in that moment of love, more powerful than offering food to the Buddha and the whole order of monks. Why? Because it's that moment of insight which opens up the possibility of liberation. So, I hope it gives you some sense of appreciation of the, of the enormous force of what we're doing here. Now, and I know that as we go through it day to day and hour to hour, it's so easy to lose sight of. You know, just dealing with the pains and the restlessness and some sittings are good and some sittings are bad. And mostly people lose the context of what the practice is about. Tremendously powerful karma forces being generated through this repeated observation and awareness of the changing nature of things. Because it's that which deconditions attachment and clinging. It's that which leads to freedom. Up till now, I've talked mostly about the karma affecting our unfolding lives. You know, what, what brings happiness and wealth and health and, and long life and different kinds of karma involved in different realms of existence. The other level of karma has to do with the Dharma of liberation. Not simply understanding the laws governing you know, this cycle of rebirths, which also is very important because we can take responsibility for our destinies, for this cycle of becoming. What do we want to become? This is how to do it. We can really align ourselves properly. There's another whole level which doesn't have to do with rebirth in the Deva realms, or the Brahma realms, or you know, becoming the King of England. It's interesting, in Thailand, people, people have a pretty good understanding of karma, and so many people I know, you know have as their goal kind of becoming the Queen of Thailand. It's like that's, that's the ultimate in, in human happiness. It's, I think it's helpful to have a really expanded view of the possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Anything is possible. Whatever you want is possible. Isn't that amazing? Whatever you would like to create is within your power to create. Anything. What's the, what's the karmic realm in terms of liber- liberation, of freedom? This is going to be about 10 or 15 minutes of more technical Abhidhamma, Buddhist psychology. It can be pretty interesting if you stay focused on it. (laughs) If you don't stay focused on it, it's spaceland. In the teachings, 
of the Buddha. The, just the jewel, the essence of the wisdom is the understanding of anatta, of selflessness. That experience does not refer back to anyone, but rather what we are is this changing process. And most often, anatta, or selflessness, was described in terms of this being, what we call a being, what we call self, is actually just a group of five aggregates. There's the aggregate of the material elements, that is what we experience as physical sensations. There's the aggregate of feelings, what I've talked about in terms of the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of each moment's experience. There's physical sensations, there's feelings. The third aggregate is perception, that is that mind factor which recognizes objects. It's the recognizing factor. Material elements, feelings, perceptions. The fourth factor, the fourth aggregate is volition, which is the key to the whole karmic unfolding, motivation. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness, that is knowing. So what we are is simply the play of these aggregates. What we call Joseph, man, woman, being, is a conventional term used to describe the interrelationship of those five aggregates. This feeling and perception and volition and consciousness and the material elements. And as an example, in one of the great texts, The Questions of King Melinda, King Melinda was this king who had a dialogue with a famous monk, Nagasena. And the king was asking about, you know, there seems to be a self, there seems to be an I. What does the selflessness mean? What does anatta mean? And so the monk, Nagasena, asked him, take a look at that chariot. And they were standing by the king's chariot. Nagasena asked the king, what is the chariot? Is the chariot the axle? Is the chariot the wheel? No. Is the chariot the spokes? No. Is the chariot this part? No. Is it that part? No. So Nagasena asked the king, what then is the chariot? Chariot is the concept applied to all of these parts in relationship to one another. But actually chariot doesn't exist. In the same way, I, self, me, mine, Joseph, you, that's the concept applied to the play of aggregates. But when you look carefully at your experience, as we've been doing for the last month and a half, you see that self or I or being doesn't exist. What exists are sensations, are thoughts, are feelings, are perceptions. Now this unfolding of the aggregates does not happen in a chaotic way. 
See, people have the impression that there's a self, there's an I, because we look in the mirror today, and we see the aggregates, and we look in tomorrow, we see the aggregates, and they look the same. And so we start getting this idea that there's someone there, some, some unchanging being. There's an unfolding. There's an unfolding to this process of changing aggregates. There's a continuity to it. It's not happening randomly. It's happening in an ordered way, in a lawful way. Okay, now is when you really have to stay with it. (laughs) The basic unit of experience, according to the Buddhist psychology, is called a thought process. And this doesn't mean discursive thinking. It just uses, we call it mind process instead of thought process. And a mind or thought process, for example, in hearing, we hear a sound. The basic unit of hearing is a thought or mind process which is made up of 17 mind moments. All of those 17 mind moments have the same object, the sound. And so our experience unfolds 17 mind moments of a thought process, and 17 mind moments of another thought process, 17 mind moments of another thought process, as we go through seeing and hearing and sensing. Each experience these 17 mind moments. Some of those 17 mind moments are called resultant moments. That is, they're the karmic results of past action. And we experience the results, the karmic results, as the feeling aggregate in each of those moments. So, for example, there's a a mind process, thought process of hearing. Some of those 17 mind moments are resultants. Suppose it's unpleasant sound. The unpleasantness in those resultant moments is the karmic result of some past action five lifetimes ago we screamed at somebody and so now we're hearing unpleasant sound. It's a result. It's a result of a past action. Some of the 17 mind moments in the process is called active moments. And that is how we are reacting to that experience. And it's in those active moments that we create new karma. So if there's an unpleasant sound, some of the moments are simply bare resultants. There's nothing to do about it. It's the fruit of our past action. But some part of the process is when the mind becomes active, and it's in that active part, depending on how we're relating to the object, that we create new karma, new results. So, for example, if there's that unpleasant sound, half of the time is just experiencing past result, nothing to do. Half of the time is active, If we don't like it, if we have aversion, if we condemn it, in that part we're creating the new karma, 
which is going to bring the result of future unpleasant feeling again. Our present feelings, that is pleasantness and unpleasantness, is the result of our past karma. You're sitting with a pain in your knee, right? It's a resultant. It's a result of some past action. How we relate to it How we relate to the present feelings is what creates the future resultants. Do you see the cycle? Past actions produce present feelings. Our reaction to present feelings creates future results. The future results at that time will be experienced as present feelings. The reaction to those present feelings will create future results. And so around and around we go. Because of feelings, we have reactions. Because of reactions, we create new feelings. Because of those feelings, we create reactions. Because of the reactions, we create new feelings. You got it? (laughs) We're experiencing feelings as a result of past action. We react to the feeling. Because, Because of the present feeling, we react. Because of the reaction, new feelings. Because of the feelings, reactions. Because of the reactions, new feelings. How to stop this wheel of conditioning? This is the wheel of samsara on the mind-moment karmic level. That's why I've said many times that it's not what's happening that's really important because that's just the result of our past actions. What's happening is happening, and there are reasons for it. But what's important is how we're relating to what's happening because that's where the new karma is being created. What's happening is fine, it doesn't matter, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's simply a result of some past action. It's a karmic result. How we relate to it is where the key is. Are we relating to it in a way that's simply going to keep the whole cycle going? What's the possibility of breaking out of this cycle of conditioning? The key, which I hope you understand by now, is mindfulness and attention. If we can experience the present feelings, whatever they are, they're feelings in the body, they're feelings in the mind, if we can experience these present feelings, which are the result of our past actions, we're experiencing results of our own actions in the past, if we can be with them, with a mind that's not grasping, not condemning, not forgetting, then we're not creating the reaction which is just going to produce more feelings. Mindfulness means awareness, openness, acceptance of what's there without attachment to the pleasant, without condemning the unpleasant, 
without forgetting or spacing out in the neutral feeling. Just being there, allowing the resultants to play themselves out without creating more new resultants. Even enlightened, fully enlightened beings experience past, experience the result of past actions. The Buddha, after his enlightenment, for the duration of his life, was experiencing the results of his of his past his past intentions. And there were times when, you know, mostly he was experiencing a lot of good results. But occasionally, some unwholesome karma from the past would come up, and there are stories of. You know, him having this backache and feeling sore, and he would ask Ananda to give the talk that night you know, while he rested. And it's not that even when we're fully enlightened that we're free of experiencing the result of our past actions, but we no longer are reacting to that. And so it just plays itself out without the creation of any new karma. There's a story of one monk, Angulimala, who had been this terrible murderer killed 999 people and collected their, fi- their fingers. In a gar- Angulimal means garland of fingers. And he was just about to go for the thousandth one, who was his mother. That's a no-no. In <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the heavy karmas, you know, killing your mama. <laughs> and the Buddha kind of saw what was going on through his, through his powers of mind. And he appeared before Ingulimal, as Ingulimal was running after his mother to kill her. There's a whole story of why he was doing it. But <laughs> and the Buddha, was, the Buddha, through the psychic projection, was, was you know, walking in front of Ingulimal. And Ingulimal was running after him. But no matter how fast Ingulimal was running, he couldn't catch up, even though the Buddha was just walking very mindfully. No lifting, moving, placing. And Angulimal was running and wasn't closing the gap. And finally, Angulimal shouted, Stop! You know, Why can't I catch you? And the Buddha replied, Angulimal, I have stopped. You're the one who has not stopped. And just through the power of the Buddha's compassion and his mind, Angulimal stopped. He really stopped. He ordained as a monk, and after some time became fully enlightened. But still he had this karma, you know, of having killed all of these people. And it said that every time he went out into the villages, you know, he would get stoned and beaten. He was experiencing the fruit of those actions. But because his mind had been freed, there was no reaction. He understood it, you know, as the, as the law of karma playing out, there was no new karma being created. When we understand karma on the level of our skillful and unskillful actions in the world, we can really begin to create for ourselves. We can fashion our lives. When we understand the forces that actually do fashion it, and we align ourselves with understanding, we can create the kind of lives for ourselves that we want. You know, from the lowest of the hell realms to the highest of the Brahma realms, they're all simply a manifestation of mind. 
So to really see that we all have, because the mind has this enormous power, that everything is the manifestation of mind. We understand how, how the law is that governs the unfolding, then we fashion our destiny. We're not, simply, we're not simply tossed along. And when we understand karma on the level of mind moments, it's that understanding that leads to the breaking of the chain of conditioning. Instead of being going around and around, of feelings, creating reactions, creating more feelings, creating more reactions, creating more feelings, creating more reactions, that, that samsaric circle, through the power of attention, of non-reaction, of simply being there for what's happening, we break that chain of conditioning, we open up to the possibility of freedom. So this is what our practice is in the largest context to the unfolding of our lives and the opening the possibility of genuine freedom of mind. If you have some questions, we could spend a little time. In that, in that, um, in those 17 mind moments, right, some of the mind moments are resultants. Right? In the active moments, that's not a karmic resultant. The mental factor of choice does the choosing. And it's true that all of that is conditioned too. And we get back to the discussion, which has been brought up a couple of times, of you know, basic free will and determinism issue, which I spent my freshman year in college hotly debating. which I don't understand any more now than I did then. (laughs) And so all I can answer is not so much from the metaphysical level, but from the experiential one. Do you stay up for the late night sitting or don't you? And experientially, it's true, the choice is going to be conditioned by various factors, and yet there's the moment of choice. There was a big negative side about feeling border of karma and being sick about it. First, it can bring a tremendous disease. And second, if you want to go to this country, people there will give a lot more, but they won't care about sick people, they won't care about elderly people. If you go to Thailand, how many five people do to come as a refugee? They will give a good aspect to Right. Okay. 
Did you hear the question in the back? The question was that the negative side, as he heard about the understanding of karma, both is that it can lead to guilt feelings, and also that, for example, in Buddhist countries, many people will give to monks and to Buddha images, and won't give to sick people or poor people, or as he mentioned, the Cambodian refugees. With respect to the first question, the first aspect of guilt, as you may have noticed, anything can lead to guilt. Whatever particular system you happen to construct for yourself, if there's not an understanding of how the mind works, right, guilt often arises. It has nothing whatsoever to do with karma. In other words, guilt is not in any way whatsoever the result of understanding the karmic law. In fact, if we really understood karma, guilt would not make any sense at all because that's simply more unwholesomeness, right? creating more, more unwholesome results. What it does lead to, and I mentioned this, the, I think, last week, it leads much more to a wise reflection about actions and about the fruit of actions. And we've all done everything bad. We have. You know, in, in the infinity of time that we've been going around and around, we've done it all. And so we don't have to feel guilty about it, because we've all done it. And it's more a sense of just this wise reflection, okay, right now, what kind of actions are going to lead to happiness? What kind of actions are going to lead to suffering? So it's really straightforward. And it's just a development of wisdom. Guilt is totally extra. And in fact, just more unwholesome karma being created. So guilt is one load or one burden that really would be helpful to put down. In terms of people, you know, giving just to monks, it's really a very limited understanding. And most people in Buddhist countries, just as in the West it's popular Christianity, in Thailand or Sri Lanka it's really popular Buddhism. And the Buddha spoke often. just of the importance and the value of taking care of the sick and feeding the poor. and you know, So it's really a misapplied and in fact a kind of greed. Right? I'll, give, I'll give an offering to the Buddha image and, and not feed the Cambodians. It's just kind of, of greed in the mind, if that's, if that's the motive. I mean, there was one time when somebody came to the Buddha for teachings and he had been hungry. And he said, you know, before I give the teachings, he, he told the other monks to go get some food and feed him, because there was no possibility of his, of his really understanding until he had been fed. So I think there's a real acknowledgement of social responsibility when it's understood properly.
you really have to look at the motivation of all the mind moments. And as I said, each the motivation of each mind moment will bring its own result. And it might be a very pure motivation, you know, all the way through. It might be a mixed motivation. And each one will bear its own fruit. You know, when I first was in Thailand in the Peace Corps, getting into all this, I asked 10 billion karma questions, you know, about mercy killing and what if somebody's suffering and is it, do you put them out of their misery or you don't? So anyway, I just experienced this as my karmic fruit. <laughs> I drove some monks really crazy. <laughs> Joseph, these five aggregates, this is scandalous, scandalous? Yeah, okay. At death, they, um, I'm, I'm making this up, I don't know, I'm asking you, is this right? The, the physical one dissolves. The other four continue, and these become the vehicle by means of which the karma is carried down the road. Is that correct? Not exactly. It's like in every moment, even within one lifetime, all the aggregates are constantly changing. Right? There's not, there's not, it's not like the aggregates are some unchanging entity that goes throughout life or from life to life. As you see, moments of perception, of consciousness, of physical elements are arising and passing in each instant. Nothing is carried over as an example of that, but rather it's... I'll give the example first. If you put a seal into wax, and then you take the seal away, right? the impression is there. But there's nothing of the seal which was carried over into the wax. Right? There's no part of the seal which is now in the wax, but the impression of the seal. Right? Each moment impresses the next moment, impresses the next, impresses the next. Right? Death consciousness impresses rebirth consciousness. In other words, because of the quality, death consciousness is like the seal, Right? impressing the rebirth. So given the certain qualities of mind in that moment of dying, right? it's not that anything's carried over, but those qualities condition what arises next. So, so that's the mechanism by means of which this is carried in the future lifetime. The fruits of the karma. Right, right, right. theoretically incompatible with what the, what the, what the leading edge of physics is saying. I think that's correct, but my knowledge of the leading edge of physics <laughs> is <laughs> minimal. <laughs> but from what I've gathered through gossip, <laughs> I think that's right.
it, it's not random. Uh, and again, it, who decides? <laughs> I, I guess I'll, I'll have to pre- I'll have to preface just the, the the tentativeness of the response. I don't know what I mentioned to you before that the Buddha listed five things, you know, which if you think about too much drives you crazy. <laughs> Karma is one of them. Right. So, just, I think there are some general principles that are very, very important to understand. Don't think too much about it, because it'll drive you crazy. For example, how what we do, you know, today, how that's going to come back ten lifetimes from now, you would need a Buddha mind to understand. But to some extent, we can get a sense, even within this lifetime, if you begin to pay attention just to the realm of cause and effect in terms of our actions, we can see you know, that what we do, to, we can see to some extent, we're not going to see the full implications, but we can see that what we do brings about certain results. And that, that mostly it has to do with the quality of our mind states. There are beings who have the power to see past and future. And it's said that the night of the Buddha's enlightenment under the tree, one of the things that he did was look back the thousands and thousands of lifetimes and just saw that whole karmic unfolding of how doing this led to this and this and this. And it's a power of mind, and there are beings today that have that power. It can be developed. But in terms of understanding the exact mechanism of it, I certainly don't know. Bigger and more more complex. Right, right. And it's quite amazing. I mean, I think maybe Sharon mentioned in one of her talks, when you just think about all the influences in our life which brought us to this moment, you know, which kind of led us to this meditation hall at this moment, it's the interweaving and intermingling of so many forces. It, it's quite mind-boggling. 